deliberately call them that, the Word and the Spirit. And I've made the inspiration of Scripture the subheading. I think there's just a crucial point I want to make in that. So um, let me recount a kind of conversation that I have been in more times than I dare to remember. And probably if you're a Christian, you've been around the block a bit debating these kinds of issues. You've probably been in this kind of conversation too. And let me tell you, it's a conversation that winds me up more than many conversations that I can imagine. And it goes something like this, okay? The topic is the Word and the Spirit, right? And someone says... Yeah, yeah, I know this church over here, and the, the preaching's great, and it's solid, and they're well into the Bible, and the preacher knows his Greek and quotes it, and they preach for 35 minutes, and the whole service leads to, to the sermon. That's a word church. And there's this other church over here where, you're sure, sure, they take the Bible seriously, and the preaching's pretty decent, but the worship's great, and the worship's spirit-filled, and then after the sermon, there's time when everybody's kind of listening to the spirit speaking, and that's a, kind of, that's a spirit-filled church. And then someone who's just kind of sitting back, pretending to be all wise by saying nothing, comes in and goes, yeah, and what you need is, you need, a, you need both, don't you? You need the word and the spirit, don't you? Now, I'm not normally a violent man. But at that moment, in that conversation, I'm, I'm ready to hit somebody. Only ready in principle, you know, not actually in reality. I have been in that kind of conversation so many times. That is an utterly fruitless, wrong-headed, untheological, unbiblical way of thinking about word and spirit. Okay? The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture would be the theological, doctrinal label for what I'm just about to be talking about. You could, though, argue that kind of biblically, everything I'm talking about is an aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because who is it who authors the Bible? It's the Holy Spirit. So when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, what are we talking about? We're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. So I kind of, I throw that out and leave that hanging, and I want to come back to that at the end. Uh, Because I think often... uh, any kind of thinking and discussion about this gets derailed by incredibly superficial debates and discussions about, quote, word and spirit. Now, inspiration is the English word that's got used in sort of doctrinal writing for what we're talking about here. Uh, that scripture is the word of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 is the key verse. I'm sure you all know that verse well. Remember I said this morning, um, 2 Timothy 3.16, inspiration of scripture, is the tip of the iceberg, but it's not as if this teaching only occurs there in the Bible, because I showed you a number of other places from scripture this morning which point towards the Bible being God speaking to us, coming to us to make himself known. Immense confusion has arisen in all sorts of circles over the fact that... You need to stick with me here for a minute here, okay? It's late afternoon, but you had a cup of tea. The word inspiration, when used for the doctrine of inspiration, 
is not used in the same sense that we use the word inspired or inspiration in everyday English conversation. Okay? Same word, but two different contexts and two different meanings. And if we don't get that one sorted, we end up in the kind of confusion I'm going to show you that all sorts of people have sometimes got themselves into. So I put there on the handout some different views of inspiration. Here's one. It would be the view that uh, the writers, that's the Bible writers, were inspired by God's revelation. And I've given the names of a couple of, a couple of scholars who have expressed this view. Here's the idea. Uh, my uh, neighbouring Anglican colleague in, my, in Hinckley, actually I was a bit rude about Hinckley, I think, right early this morning. I want to apologise to the town I live in. When I said it's ordinary, I meant that as a compliment. It's a great place to live. The any Hinkley thought police present now, hopefully not after me. Now, my neighbouring uh, Anglican colleague expressed this view to a T in a discussion I was in just the other week when he heard my view of the Bible in a clergy meeting and he kind of nodded sort of wisely and said, well, no, I don't see it that way. Uh, here's the way I see it, he said. It's that uh, God, of course, has done great things in history, particularly in Jesus, and the people who were up close and personal to it saw more of it and probably understood more of it than we do, uh, and they wrote that down in the Bible for us. So they, they witnessed revelation up close and personal, God's revelation in history, but especially in Jesus, uh, and they wrote it down. The problem with that in the end is, if you boil it all down as I put there, it sounds kind of okay as far as it goes, but in the end, it presents us with a God who doesn't speak. It presents us with a dumb God who does things, and some people witness it. They get some of it right, but because they're sinful, they muddle some of it, and they write it down for us in Scripture, and we've got to work out their muddle. You see, a mistake that's made there is in the end you put it doctrinally, what that view does is it takes the word the inspiration of scripture and imagines that it, that is meant in the ordinary sense of the word inspiring. You know, like I could say truthfully, when I was at school, I had an absolutely superb German teacher who inspired me to a higher standard of, in German that I would have probably achieved with a lesser teacher. And that's true. Someone gave me a leg up to do better than I probably would have done on my own or with somebody else leading me. That first year of inspiration assumes that God, in the end, did that, but no more than that, with the people who wrote the Bible. The second view of inspiration would be this, and this is Karl Barth, again, 20th century Swiss theologian, for whom the Bible is inspired in the sense that it is inspiring. So here, to say scripture is inspired is not actually say, say anything about the Bible in and of itself, but is to say, do you know what? When people who love Jesus open the Bible and read it and hear it preached, God inspires them to do all sorts of stuff and to believe all sorts of things. The Bible's inspiring. Now, of course, I want to say again, that's true as far as it goes, but 
we're stopping woefully short if we say that's what the inspiration of Scripture means. Particularly if you ask the kind of question I've put there, problem. Well, what kind of book can be confidently trusted to inspire us towards the true God? All sorts of people find all sorts of things inspiring. But we need to say something about the Bible itself more than some people say they find it inspiring when they read it. So the third view, which is the Bible's view, it's the classic traditional church view through history. And that is this, it's when we say scripture is inspired, what we mean is no more and no less than God is the author of the Bible. And whatever you may hear other people say, that simply is and has been the mainstream Christian view right from the very beginning. You can find it in there in the early theologians and you can trace it right through history. It's not, it's not an invention of people like me. It is the church teaching that we have received. Inspiration, then, is the claim that the Bible has its origins with God. Now, what's really crucial to get hold of about that is this. When we say the Bible's inspired, understanding that word properly, we are saying absolutely nothing at all about what God did by the Spirit in the people who wrote the Bible. Okay? We're saying nothing at all about that. We're saying no more and no less than the Bible has its origins with God. So uh, I put you a, a definition there from a, a contemporary um, American theologian called John Frame, just written a doorstop of a book on the Word of God. But I think this is a helpful quote. He says, Inspiration is a divine act that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word. Now, of course, we may want to say all sorts of interesting things, and we, I will in a few minutes, about well, what did God exactly do in and through the people who wrote the Bible to produce what we've got and what he wanted to say? That's another question. It's not what 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, chapter 3 verse 16 addresses. Okay? Uh, let me say, I'm, uh, I'm going to attempt in this uh, talk to leave a bit of time for questions. Um, having talked a lot in the first session this morning about how important promises are, I'm not going to make you a promise, but I'm going to try. I think with all this stuff being thrown at you, good to have some time just kind of process it, chat about it, throw any questions back. So, section two, we're homing in here on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and actually on one, ver, uh, one word within that verse, let me underline, this word, this verse is simply a particular expression of what's taught right through the Bible. We're not hanging everything on just one word. So, the meaning and implications of theopneustos. Uh, you may know lots of New Testament Greek, or you may know none, but um, actually no one, now, no one here now knows none. Uh, theopneustos is the Greek word in 2 Timothy 3.16 that in the NIV is translated God-breathed. 
Or if you have an ESV, it's translated, I think, breathed out by God. Um, Just as a little aside, that would be one example of uh, the NIV catching the literalness of the Greek a whole lot better than the ESV, because it conveys one Greek word with kind of one English word, whereas at that point the ESV takes four English words to translate one Greek word. Now, this word itself, theopneustos, it's made up of two Greek words, theos, which means God, and pneustos, which is the adjective derived from the noun pneuma, which means spirit, as in Holy Spirit, and it also means breath. So what you've got here is, well, you see the NIV just has it dead literally, God breathed. That's what the word means. Now, why do we talk about the inspiration of Scripture and not the God-breathedness of Scripture? Here's why. In a sense, it's a historical accident. Those of you who are brought up with the King James Version will know that the King James of 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired And the inspiration for that, if you like, is if you go back and back, is that the the Latin translation of the New Testament, which of course is very influential in the Middle Ages, before widespread English translations, the Latin was inspirata, which leads sort of rather naturally to the English translation inspired. As I said... It's that, it's a, in a sense, it's a quirk of English language and history. But it's that that has led us very often down a blind alley of thinking 2 Timothy 3.16 means something about the influence God had on the writers of the Bible so that they wrote what they did. 2 Timothy 3.16 has nothing at all to say about that. As um, probably the, the, uh, the guy who, writing in English, has done the most research on this word. Um, an American Presbyterian theologian of the late 19th, early 20th century, a man called B.B. Warfield, written a great deal on this. He did more research on the Greek word theoponoustos than you might imagine could possibly be done. And I'm so glad he did it. You know, he chased the word up and... Uh, other variations of the word and words a bit like it in Greek, in Greek literature of the time, way beyond the Bible. No telly in those days, so, you know, plenty of time. He concluded this. I put it there on the handout. Theopneustos is primarily expressive of the origination of Scripture, not of its nature, and much less of its effects about where the Bible comes from. So the best translation is something like God breathed. Therefore, and here's a a phrase that Warfield came up with, just simply, that means what Scripture says, God says. Now, it's important to make an aside here because um, anybody who goes around saying what the Bible says, God says will often be accused of, um, and the bogey word that might get thrown at them is being a fundamentalist. I don't know if you've ever been accused of being a fundamentalist. 
It seems to me fundamentalist is one of the most useless labels around because it can mean almost anything. As far as I can see, it basically is used by almost everybody to describe people who are more conservative than you are and who you think are a bit weird. Apart from those people who happen just to like glory in the, glorying in the name fundamentalist. Um, just as a side, this is, it's, it's a bit of a cheap thing. But um, you know what a fundamentalist, you know the real definition of fundamentalist is, don't you? No fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. Important to avoid all those things. Now, you'll, if you go around saying what scripture says God says, you might be accused of being a fundamentalist. And what people will often mean by that is, you take every little phrase of the Bible super literally, draw massive amounts of meaning out of it. Um, they think you're incapable of understanding, let's say, that certain laws in the Old Testament don't apply to the Christian directly as they were written, and that you just read the whole Bible in a very flat, wooden way, as if every single verse was a direct instruction from God entirely as it stands. But of course, B.B. Warfield's a very careful handler of the Bible. When he says what Scripture says God says, he knows full well that is every part of scripture interpreted in the light of every other part of scripture and in its context in history and its context in God's unfolding of redemption. So that's inspiration. It means no more and no less than the Bible is God's words. The Bible is God's speech. It is his breathed out words, just as the words you're hearing right now are my breathed out words. In the end, we have no choice but to stick with the label inspiration of scripture. Um, if you kind of play around with English, you might say, um, if it's not about God inspiring, a better English translation would be all scripture is expired except that has another meaning in English, so that's best avoided. You get the idea. It's all, all scripture is exhaled. That's the, that's the idea. Now, over the page on the handout. Just need to flesh this out a little bit more, because in debates over these things, theologians have um, wanted to define this more. As, as rightly happens, when doctrines are attacked, they often need to be defined in greater detail. And what you often end up with is this phrase, this may be new to you or it may not be, the phrase plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary verbal inspiration. That means simply, that plenary inspiration simply means the whole of Scripture, not just one section of it or one theme of it, is breathed out by God. Verbal inspiration means the words themselves are breathed out by God, not just the overall spirit or, or the gist. Now, I just want to make a little aside here because some um, verbal inspiration 
has sometimes led, I think, again, in a sense, I guess in this talk I'm point, trying to point out where I think some blind alleys have happened so that we can avoid them in our thinking. A strong stress on verbal inspiration has led to there being too much of a focus or perhaps the wrong kind of a focus on literal, the tiny words and the tiny letters within Scripture itself. Now, I want to be really careful here because, of course, Christ talks about every jottle and tittle being vital, which is true. But it is also true that because of the way language works, you can quite often change one little word in a paragraph and the meaning is really the same. Now, of course, change another little word or even a little letter and the meaning is entirely changed and we know that. But uh, you may well know that um, we do not have the exact documents as written by the Bible writers. What we have is pieced together from the many different copies that have survived. Now, largely, they are identical. But there will be some places where there are differences. And um, many English translations will, will point that out to you. You might get a little footnote that says, other ancient authorities read. And that's pointing out to you where all the different copies we have of that particular part of Scripture, there are some differences. Now, the encouraging thing is, you look hard at those differences and ask yourself, is the meaning of that paragraph of Scripture that I'm reading really changed, whether I go for one or the other? And the answer is, in almost every case, no, not at all. Not at all. See, the heart of what God has breathed out is the meaning of the sentences and the paragraphs and the books. That's our focus. Now, of course, individual letters and words are important as they serve that. But some Christians get really nervous and worried, and some non-Christians wanting to attack us, as soon as they discover the fact that there are places where we're not entirely certain what the original exactly was at that point. Christians can get nervous. Do I really have the word of God? And people can attack us. Ah, you know, you are not really certain what the Bible is anyway. To which we want to say, no, no. God speaks individual letters because what he is speaking to us is sentences and paragraphs and points and encouragements and exhortations and statements about Christ. And the differences that there are don't change the gospel, don't change our faith one jot. I say all of that because it has sometimes... uh, Uh, The idea of verbal inspiration, I think, has led to a focus just in the wrong kinds of directions sometimes. Now, point B, what about the New Testament? Because someone may well rightly point out, well, if you think about it, in context, when Paul wrote uh, to Timothy 3.16 and he said all scripture, by definition, he only could have had it consciously in his mind the Old Testament, because the New Testament had not been compiled as we now have it at that point. And that's true. So on what basis would we apply, as it were, after the fact, 
theopneustos also to the New Testament? Well, again, I could give a whole lecture on this, but uh, you see, I just put a couple of things there on the handout, uh, and they'd be this. The four Gospels were very quickly accepted as Scripture. This may well be old hat to many of you, but it, I constantly find Christians in my own church, and certainly many non-Christians, who've been fed something which is just the direct opposite of the facts. You know, people often carry around the idea, don't they? I, I think most recently it came from the Da Vinci Code and all that kind of stuff. You know, the whole idea that, um, frankly, the, there was a lot of confusion for about 300 years, and then a pope sat down with a bunch of cronies and said, now look, if we're going to have a decent world religion that's going to last, we can't have this confusion. So, you know, there's going to be some order. I'm going to send the heavies around to sort this out. That's, of course, absolutely what n- is not what happened. Uh, the four Gospels, as we have them, were very, very quickly accepted as Scripture. Paul's letters, too. So, um, to Peter, here's another 3.16. To Peter 3.16. What's remarkable in that verse is the throwaway nature of what I'm just pointing out to you. This is the by-the-way nature. Peter, writing of Paul, says Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So Peter, within his lifetime, is able simply to assume without argument that Paul's letters are scripture. And it's really quite remarkable. Uh, no argument about it. It's just, we all know the scripture, and people distort them. So the, the establishing of which books were God-breathed and which were not, you might say was a process of discovery rather than decree. Uh, and then, of course, there's um, Jesus' own teaching. Uh, John 16, that uh, passage I took us to this morning, so I won't go back there again, where Jesus dis- talk, uh, promises to the uh, original band of disciples how he would send the Spirit with words for them that they would write down. And that promise kept for us by Christ as the New Testament came to be written. Let me just at this point make a a comment about the canon, the canon of Scripture. Because, of course, I've talked about the Gospels accepted early, I've talked about Paul's letters, but it is true that um, debates within the Christian church over whether certain smaller books should be in the Bible or not, Jude would be a good example, raged for a good three or, f- three or four centuries. Uh, and often, well, what should we say about that? Does that make saying just categorically, this is the word of God, does that make that a worry? Well, I think I'd want to say this. If you're a preacher, you should happily preach on Jude as the word of God. A Christian, read it as the word of God. But there is a right sense in which a book, a letter like Jude, is somewhat more peripheral 
to the diet of a church's teaching or what a Christian spiritually draws on for themselves than, let's say, the Gospels or Paul's major letters. It's not that Jude is not the word of God. Of course it is the word of God for our edification. God speaks through it. But there's a sense in which it is somewhat more on the periphery, let's say, than the Gospels. And if I, if I don't preach on Jude as much as I preach on Mark, I don't think I've made a major mistake. Almost by definition, because there were questions about it. That's its role within the canon. It's not that the canon has very blurry edges, it has very firm edges. But not everything is central. The doctrine of inspiration doesn't lead us to conclude that. So, point C. I want to think a bit here a little bit about um, theopneustos, this word uh, that scripture is spoken by God, uh, and different versions of the Bible. I've already said that strictly speaking, it's the, um, the original manuscripts, which um, scholars, I think, quite entertainingly call the autographs. And when I first came across that term, I imagined that, you know, Paul had personally signed it. Or Matthew, my gospel, Matthew. No, they just mean written, the manuscript written by the actual author. Strictly speaking, if you're going to be very rigorous in, in your thinking about this, what is it that is spoken out by God? It is that original manuscript. And as far as we know, those have not been discovered. Uh, perhaps lost as faithful copies were made and then passed on. But as I've said, the variants are so minor. And the way God speaks through Scripture is such that we are able to say of our contemporary Bibles as we have them, this is the word of God. Now, it is possible for inspiration to be over-applied. Let me just give you one kind of interesting historical example here. You see, I put there on the handout, for example, Hebrew vowel points in the 17th century. The point of this is, uh, is simply this. Um, Hebrew... Uh, is written in a rather different way to most of the languages we know of, where the vowels don't occur as letters as such, but you signal a vowel by making some dots or little marks above or below the consonants. Okay? So if you see modern Hebrew written, what you're looking at is simply the consonants. Now, for us who are used to A, E, I, O, and U being you know, full letters in their own right, that just sounds strange. But, of course, if that's your language and you know that how, how, that's how it works, a modern Israeli reading Hebrew, has, there's, there's no doubt about what the word is. You just naturally insert the vowels for yourself. And debates did arise over whether the dots for the vowels in the Old Testament, as we have them in Hebrew, were breathed out by God or not. And particularly in the 17th century, a number of uh, Christian theologians began to say that, yes, they were put there by God. They were breathed out by God, those vowels. And part of the worry was, if they're not, doesn't the Bible seem just a bit more uncertain? Haven't we given away too much ground to those who would attack 
our view of the Bible? The problem with that is, historically, it just doesn't work. The vowel points were added much later by interpreters. So as regards the Hebrew Old Testament, what is breathed out by God is the consonants. I give this as an example of uh, when Christians get nervous on this and sort of attacked on it, it can sometimes be possible to, to claim too much in order to shore up what we think we've got. The hard thing to do, but always the right thing to do, is simply to, to stand on the solid ground that we have and not invent ground that we don't have. And the fact is, with the Hebrew of the Old Testament, saying that the dots are not breathed out by God is not a problem because there's rarely an occasion where there'd be any major debate. Now, let's push this on. This means that we can say a good translation of the Bible is also God-breathed. A good translation of the Bible is also God-breathed. Now, I think when I talk to non-Christians about the Bible, that's often one of the first things they throw at me. Oh, it's just got changed so often in translation, hasn't it? And even when you tell them that historically that's nonsense and you give them evidence for the manuscripts, they often still come back at you with, yeah, but when you translate things, stuff gets changed, doesn't it? I hear that quite a lot, even among some Christians. Um, In the end, the Christian answer to that is a really profound one. And it's this. I think we need to relate that to the incarnation. Uh, Someone asked me uh, this morning a really interesting question, which is, um, would a Muslim be able to say of the Quran everything that I just said this morning about the Bible? Very interesting question. Some of you may well know more about that than I do. Um, as it's been explained to me by uh, people who've done a lot of work amongst Muslims and lived in Islamic countries, the Quran in Islam doesn't have the same place that the Bible does in Christianity. It occupies the same place largely that Jesus does in Christianity. And by very definition the Quran cannot be translated. So if you buy a copy of the Quran in English, it doesn't actually say on the cover, Holy Quran. It describes it as a translation of Quran. Because the Arabic of the Quran has literally dropped out of heaven in the, in the Islamic view. Unsullied, as it were, by the world. But of course, the Christian understanding of how God makes himself known is rather different, isn't it? The Christian understanding of how God makes himself known is, in the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, can unite himself with a thoroughly earthly human person, Jesus of Nazareth, without God's revelation being spoiled or sullied or muddied. Because God is Trinity, he is able to remain absolutely who he is, the holy God, uncompromised, untainted, unaffected by his creation, and also unite himself with part of his creation and thereby reveal himself to his creation 
through his creation. This may sound kind of slightly abstract, but if you want to get hold of a kind of a solid confidence in your own heart as to why a translation of the Bible is totally the word of God, that's the heart of it. If God can make himself perfectly known through a human being, part of something created, Jesus of Nazareth, the person Jesus, well then... Not a problem at all for God be able to be able to speak his eternal word through the different languages of the world that he has created. We trust that he has given us language such that if you translate his word from one language to another, it's still his word. So a good translation of the Bible is also God-breathed. Point three. All of this up to this point has been the doctrine of inspiration. What 2 Timothy 3.16 means by God breathed. And I've said it's had nothing at all to do with what God actually did in and through the people who wrote the Bible. In point three, I'm moving away from that, and I am just going to make a comment about what God was doing in and through the people who wrote the Bible. Okay? Back to B.B. Warfield again, who's described this really well. He doesn't use the most exciting terminology, but what he's saying is great. And he says this, that God, the Holy Spirit, authored scripture by, here's his phrase, concursive operation. And he says, by concursive operation may be meant that form of revelation illustrated in an inspired psalm or epistle or history in which no human activity, not even the control of the will, is superseded. But the Holy Spirit works in, with, and through them all in such a manner as to communicate to the product qualities distinctly superhuman. His point is simply this. Did God write the Bible or did people write the Bible? Answer, 100% both. It's not that the human and the divine in the writing of the Bible jostle with each other. So if Paul puts a bit more of his personality in, that means there's a bit less of God in it. Or if God elbows a bit more of the Holy Spirit into what he's saying, that's a bit less of Paul. No, no, it is 100% both. So you see that at that point, the writing of the Bible is part of the doctrine of providence. How is it that the death of Jesus was, as Acts says, the act of wicked men and what God planned from all eternity? Well, it was 100% both. And that will always be mysterious to us. The writing of the Bible is simply another example of that. And if you scratch away at the surface, many people who object to the Bible being 100% God's word are actually objecting to the doctrine of providence. That an action can be 100% human and also 100% divine. And at that point, they're not just quibbling with the Bible. They're quibbling with the very roots of the Bible's doctrine of God. So, finally, point four. The whole Bible as breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit 
working in union with the Father and the Son, is the author of Scripture. So, back to where I began with my little rant about word and spirit. If in a particular church the Bible is taught faithfully and powerfully and accurately and preached to the mind and the heart and the will, that is a thoroughly spirit-filled church. Because that engagement with Scripture is thoroughly a spirit activity. Let's have no talk of word and spirit, where what is meant by spirit is things that bear no particular relation to the Bible. It's not that the spirit is only at work when the Bible is open, of course not. But the spirit is the author, and as we'll find out tomorrow, the interpreter and the applier of the word of God to us. I'm going to stop there. Um, Let me suggest this. Um, Just a couple of minutes. Um, If you want to, just turn and chat to someone next to you, or if you just prefer, just think on your own. Um, And just before we rush away, uh, just think right through today, Ben's material as well, just one or two things where you think, that's what I've learned, that's what I want to take away, or here's something I've got a couple more questions about.